Yeah. How far can they jump, Karen? Okay. I did look that up. Five feet. Five feet high, five feet long. Five feet in the air. In so, the air. so I'm like five feet, four inches tall. So it pretty much. Jump on your head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if I lived there and there was a thousand different sand obligates, I would learn to jump five feet in the air also. <laughs> I'd learn to fly. I would find a new home. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Our country's national parks protect a huge variety of landscapes, and today we're playing in the sand at some of the national parks that feature sand dunes. We'll talk about what to see and do at Great Sand Dunes, White Sands, and Indiana Dunes National Parks. And we'll also mention a few other parks where you'll find sand dunes in some unexpected places. And even though they all have sand dunes, they're actually very different parks offering a wide variety of experiences. Can you believe it's already September? Uh, No, I can't. (laughs) Where did the summer go? It, well, there's a little bit of summer left. All of a sudden, though, you know, kids are back at school, and it seems like fall is here already. I know. The parks are getting a little less crowded. They are. This is actually our favorite time to start going (laughs) right about now. That's right. Uh, But something we wanted to talk about really quickly first before we get into the sand dunes is a wonderful program that the National Park Service has for fourth graders. Yeah, we try to tell people about this every year this time. I get very excited because I think this is one of the greatest deals out there, and not very many people know about it. That's right. So all fourth graders, so that's this current school year fourth graders, are eligible for a free park pass that will give them and their families free access into not just the national parks, but all federally managed public lands. And if you were to buy the annual pass for your family, I mean, that's $80. So this is, you know, this is an $80 savings. That's right. And it's valid for kids that are homeschooled as well. It's not just if you're in, you know, a regular school, if you're homeschooled, you, you qualify as well. There's a lot of details on the website. Now, to get the free pass, fourth grade students, they need to visit the website, Every Kid Outdoors, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes of this episode. And on that website, you participate in a short educational activity and download a voucher. And it's valid for unlimited use between September 1st and August 31st of the next year. So this year, September 1st, 2023 through August 31st, 2024. The voucher then can be exchanged for a keepsake pass Mm -hmm. at participating federal lands. And like I said, I'll put a link to that in the show notes of this episode. So how it works is this voucher or the pass, it allows uh, free entry, not just for the fourth graders, but for all children under 16 in the group and up to three adults or just your entire car when you go to the drive-in parks. And this is at all federally managed 
public lands and waters. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that this is good for national forests. A lot of these national forests, when you go, you have to pay the fee at the trailhead. Well, you just put this little pass in your car on the dashboard and you're set. That's right. And, you know, couples, as you're, you know, starting to have a family and do your family planning, you should just have a kid every year. And then... You have a child every year. You can get into the national parks free pretty much forever or until you're old enough that your kids can start taking care of you. That's a good plan, just, Matt. I'm yeah. sure I'm sure people are going to just jump on that. But you know what? I wish, looking back, growing up in Topeka, Kansas, if I would have had this program when I was in fourth grade and knew about it, it, it could have changed my life. It could have changed the trajectory <laughs> because I didn't even know that national parks existed back then. So as a fourth grader, Karen, you would have you would have grabbed that voucher and you would have been off. Oh, I would have. Yes. From <laughs> and Topeka, not look Kansas. Back. I think you're <laughs> supposed to have a, a guardian with you when you enter the park. They're not just letting fourth graders in by themselves. All right. Well, that is that is a good point. Fourth graders do need to have some kind of an adult, I believe, with them. They should. They should. They really should. Okay. And so one other thing we wanted to mention after we talked about the National Park Service, the Junior Ranger program in a recent episode, we received an email from a third grade teacher in Georgia named Wendy. Yeah, and I'm just going to read this email that she sent to us really quickly because I think a lot of teachers out there are going to be interested in hearing this. So she wrote... After the COVID lockdown, when Zoom calls and distance learning became normal, I started looking into distance learning opportunities through the National Park Service. I emailed a handful of parks, just hoping for one response. Amazingly, I heard back from every park except Gates of the Arctic. In one year, we had online ranger programs with Olympic Everglades and Yellowstone. This past year, we had programs with Rocky Mountain, Everglades, and Saguaro. The third graders and teachers from Georgia had their minds blown. Some parks will even send junior ranger books and badges, enough for every student. I would make slides with info and videos for my students so they could complete their books. Then I'd do the pledge with them and give them their badges. The parents have emailed me to say how proud their kids are about these badges and how their kids want to go visit other parks for upcoming vacations. I think more teachers would take advantage of these opportunities if they were aware of them. That's fantastic. I mean, it really is. So how do they do that? They just um, send an email to the parks? Apparently so. I think the parks are really good about sharing these resources with kids. And so what a great thing because teachers, you know, third grade teachers, fourth grade teachers, you could combine the two, have the, the fourth graders get the free pass. And then you're also doing junior ranger programs with them and talking about the parks. I think it's a, you know, it's a curriculum that kids would be so excited about. Yeah, you get the third graders all excited. Mm -hmm. And then the next year they get into the parks for free mm -hmm. and it would change the trajectory of their lives. <laughs> It might. It might, for sure. So anyway, we're excited about this. We're excited to see kids in the parks and especially learning about how to protect the parks and how to um, keep them pristine and be stewards of the parks. And these teachers, thank you, Wendy, are doing such an amazing job in helping foster this love of our public lands. 
Okay, and so wanted to mention that before we move on, but let's, Matt, move on to our main topic. Okay. Now, we know that there are a lot of public lands across the country that have sand dunes, but today we're going to talk about the National Park Sand Dune Parks. That's right. And on our very first visit to a sand dune, gosh, that was what, uh, 13 years ago, wasn't it, Matt? 13 years ago. That's right. (laughs) We had a bit of a rough start. It was park number eight on our journey to visit all the parks. This was um, great sand dunes. And we thought that that was going to be it for us. Like that was the the first and last sand dune park that we were going to do. We had had enough of sand dunes (laughs) after that visit. That's right. And also White Sands and Indiana Dunes hadn't yet been redesignated as national parks. So actually at that time, Great Sand Dunes was the only national park that featured sand dunes. We couldn't imagine more sand dune parks. No, but we learned a lot and we have since changed our opinion of sand dune parks and we've had a a lot of really great experiences in the sand dune parks that we're going to talk about today. That's right. So what's our first sand dune park that we're going to talk about today, Karen? Well, I I think it's appropriate that we start where we started and that is at Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve in Colorado. Yeah, and I like The fact that it has the tallest sand dune in North America, the Star Dune, is 750 feet high. Yes, and you can hike to that if you want to. (laughs) I think the one we hiked to was High Dune, and that's just a little bit shorter. It's about 700 feet high. Still a trek to get up there, though. Yeah, and we brought a lot of that sand back with us in our in our hiking boots on the way down. So it was it was about two feet shorter after we got done hiking it. It certainly felt that way. All right, so Matt, a really brief history um, about when Great Sand Dunes became a national park because I know you were just about to ask that very question. All right, give it to us. <laughs> so efforts to preserve this area started in the late 1920s when a local chapter of the Women's PEO club began the movement to save this natural wonder from being used to make cement and glass. What does PEO mean? (laughs) You know, as I was reading that, I knew (laughs) you were going to ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) You want to get back to us on that one? Yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. So the park was originally designated Great Sand Dunes National Monument in March of 1932 by President Herbert Hoover. Um, And at that time, the original boundaries protected an an area of about 35,000 acres. But a boundary change and redesignation as a national park and preserve was authorized in the year 2000 and then officially became Great Sand Dunes National Park on September 24th. 2004. So pretty recently. So they authorized it in 2000 and it took them four years to yes. make it a national park. Yes, Could they you did. get back to us also <laughs> on what took so long? You got a lot of interest in History History Channel today. This is a first. I, I'm always interested <laughs> in history. When am I not interested uh-huh. in history? When you're going to get coffee and, and cake while I read the History Channel. <laughs> I don't ever get cake because we don't have cake. All right. Matt, tell everyone how big Great Sand Dunes is. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It's great. As, as a matter of fact, it encompasses 107,342 acres, Karen. And then the preserve that's adjacent protects an additional 
41,686 acres for a total of 150,000 acres. Is that right? Did you do the math there? <laughs> well, the total of 150,000 is an approximation. It's not exact down to the acre, but it gives people a general idea. Yeah, and then the large, the main dune field covers approximately 30 square miles, but there are many more miles of smaller dunes. I just wanted to say that, so I got to say the word dune field. Okay, what about sand sheet? Did you see the rest of the words there on the outline? Well, the, the, smaller, dunes, the smaller dunes are in the sand sheet surrounding right. the main dune field. Was that the geology channel right there? Because that was a little weak, I have to say. Never heard the term sand sheet or dune field in my life. Well, that's surprising given your expertise. But what I think is surprising to a lot of people is that Great Sand Dunes National Park also includes alpine lakes and tundra, six mountain peaks that are over 13,000 feet in elevation, plus ancient spruce and pine forests and large stands of aspen and cottonwood, also grasslands and wetlands. So all of this is within the park and preserve, although, you know, most people make a beeline, of course, for the sand dunes. So this park has a sand sheet, a dune field, tundra, and wetlands. It really has it all, Matt. It does have it, it all. It has it all. And when you see the great sand dunes, it really is a magnificent sight with the snow-capped mountains in the distance surrounding the dune fields. It really is an incredible sight. You got the San Juan Mountains to the west, and then to the north, you got the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. It's spectacular. Okay, so some of the things to do in great sand dunes would be Take a hike up the dunes, play in Medino Creek if it's running. We'll talk about that in a minute. Sandboarding and sand sledding. Those are some of the most popular things to do. Let's talk about Medino Creek. It's always there, but it starts flowing in April. And that's because of the snowmelt in the mountains. And then it peaks in late May and then drives up again in June. But here's the thing. During the surge flow, lots of great words mm -hmm. in this episode. The surge flow waves, they flow across the sand. And sometimes people can even like surf them, yes. you know, and play in them. Yeah. yeah. And so we have seen photos and it looks like a beach and there are people there with their their coolers and towels and their, you know, blow up floaties. And it does look like fun. However, just a note that it is extremely crowded during this um, surge flow. And I guess there are long lines and overflow parking lots. So, you know, if you like that kind of thing, then it sounds fun. That's probably not something that we would ever care to go do. If you like the long lines and crowds, <laughs> is, that, is that your point? No, I mean, if you like the beach vibe, going to the beach. But what if you like to hike? Let's talk about our hiking experience there. Our brief little sad story. Now, when we went to the park, we went in July. It was about mid-July. And because we were coming from an, one of the other national parks, and we had, you know, I think like a four-hour drive in the morning, we got to the park around noon, started hiking around one. And this is really a dumb thing to do. Yeah, it was extremely dumb. It was probably the absolute worst possible time of year and time of day to hike the dunes. Well, it is because one thing we didn't know, you know, it was a hot day. I think it was might have been 90 or 95, but 
On summer afternoons, the sand on the sand dunes can get up to 150 degrees. And you could feel it. You could feel it when you touched it. You could feel the heat coming off it. The other thing we didn't realize, again, dumb, is that the elevation here is 8,000 feet. So you are climbing up a sand dune. The sand is shifting. It's filling your shoes. You know, it's 90-something degrees. And you're at 8,000 feet elevation. So we were huffing and puffing from that. We were really stupid now that I now that we... <laughs> think back and and talk about this we didn't have gaiters on which I, i never thought of wearing gaiters but the sand was filling up my hiking boots and you would think well only so much sand could get in there and once they're full then that's fine you're just walking with sand in your shoes but it just kept filling up my boots and i had to empty them often yes and the thing is too you know you you might think well why wouldn't you just go barefoot Again, the sand is 150 degrees. And to top all this off, it was also windy. And the sand was blowing in our faces, our eyes, even with sunglasses on our ears. We're sweating. The sand is sticking to us. So really, <laughs> it, was, it, it was actually one of the worst experiences ever. <laughs> but it was totally our fault. Oh, 100% we went, our fault. Yeah, we went at the wrong time. Yes. Uh, we were unprepared. <laughs> This is kind of a theme in our life, but we've learned a lot since. Right. And we have had other sand dune experiences that we will talk about today that were actually fantastic because we either went early in the morning or in the evening for sunset, and then it is a completely different situation. Okay. So like a lot of our podcast episodes, we're telling you all the stuff not to do. Yes, exactly. Okay, so we had mentioned earlier about sandboarding and sand sledding. We saw a lot of people doing this. We didn't try it, but it does look like fun. Now, here's the thing I found out is that you can't just use sleds or saucers that are made for snow. It won't work here. So there are rental places outside of the park where you can rent sandboards and sand sleds. They actually don't rent these at the visitor center. Yeah, it is a different deal like the physics of sliding down snow is very different than the physics of sliding down sand and you can't just bring your snow sled or snow saucer or or snowboard and think that you're gonna you know fly down the dunes and have a great time you'll go about 10 feet and stop right we also saw people interestingly enough with cookie sheets (laughs) yeah and you, you spray the um the Pam or whatever the, you know, the non-stick stuff on the bottom of the cookie sheet and you slide down the sand. Yeah, I couldn't really tell how that was working out for people because I was blinded by the sand in my eyes. So I just kind of noticed them briefly on our way back to the truck. But anyway, if you're interested in renting the sand equipment, check the Great Sand Dunes National Park website because they list specific locations outside the park where you can rent these things before you get to the park. Okay, so you can do that. You can also, Karen, did you know that you could sleep on the dunes? That does sound really fun, doesn't it? It does. You have to be in the dunes backcountry, and you do need a permit to do this. Right. You can get these permits on recreation.gov. Now, they only issue 20 permits available per day, and this is 20 permits for a group, right? And your group can only be six people or less. So you know what, Matt? I just looked because I was curious And like for tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and there were still permits available. So I don't think there's a lot of people doing that. 
is there a reason why people don't do it? <laughs> there's... The reason, well, one reason might be because you have to camp beyond the day use area. So it's it's a minimum 1.5 mile hike up and over the dunes to get out there. So, you know, if you're carrying your sleeping bag and, and gear and stuff, that that is a long trek in the sand to get out there. Yeah. And I just wonder if once you're out there and you're sleeping out there, you know, it would probably be pretty comfortable. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we did the Grand Canyon River trip, we always slept on the sand and it was just, it was very comfortable, like memory foam. But do you think there's critters? Well, yeah, that's what I, w- that's what I would be worried about too. I saw photos of some really big beetles and, and I read that this park has insects that are sand obligates which I guess means that they're adapted for living in the sand, living in these dune fields. And currently, get this, over a thousand different kinds of anthropods, those would be insects and spiders, are known to live at great sand dunes. Okay, I'm out. <laughs> it's, you lost me at spiders. I don't do spiders. Beetles. What about beetles? Those beetles were really big. I don't like beetles. I'm okay with beetles. Beetles don't bother me. They don't? No, I don't like the spiders. Okay, well, apparently they are all there. And you know what else is there? (laughs) Apparently not. Kangaroo rats. Kangaroo rats? Yeah. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, I'm kind of fond of kangaroo rats. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) They're jumpers. Yes, they are. That's why they're called kangaroo rats. How'd you know that? Well, I think I did a report on kangaroo rats when I was in second grade or something like that. Yeah. And it stuck with you, huh? Yeah. Well, according to the park website, this, they call a fascinating species, (laughs) is the only mammal that lives their entire lives in the main dune field. So I have a feeling that if you are sleeping on the dunes, you might see a, a kangaroo rat or two if that's their habitat, right? Yeah, uh, how far can they jump, Karen? Okay, I did. I did look that up. Five feet. Five feet high. Five feet long. Five feet in the air. In so, the air. so I'm like five feet four inches tall. So it pretty be much jump onto your head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if I lived there and there was a thousand different sand obligates, I would learn to jump five feet in the air. Also, <laughs> I would learn to fly. I would find a new home. Although I guess what we could do is take our little tents and then when it's time to sleep, you know, we just crawl in the tent and then any jumping rats or huge beetles are not going to be bothering us. I don't know. But but the reason that this would be a cool thing to do is because I guess the night sky out there is incredible and Great Sand Dunes is certified a dark sky park. So that would, I think, would be a cool thing to do. That would be cool. (laughs) You'd be looking at the stars and and watching for kangaroo rats at the same time. Right. There is another area called Sand Ramp Trail that has designated backcountry sites. You can reserve those too. And those, I believe, are more off to the side. They're closer. You don't have to hike the mile and a half out there. So you could check that out as well. Okay. So that's something else you could do. Mm -hmm. What about driving the... Medano Pass Primitive Road. You could do that. You could if you have a four-wheel drive vehicle with high clearance. Or you'd be stuck in the sand. Yes, sand is everywhere apparently in this park. And you you would need to know how to get out of sand. Well, you'd need a snatch strap, right? Well, yeah, if you had somebody else to, to pull you out. There are some 
types of vehicles, ours is one of those that have this crawl control feature. So if you get stuck in deep sand, it can get you out. It like automatically does something with the wheels and, and pulls you out of the sand. But if you don't have that, you, you really need to know what you're doing in deep sand. Well, you do. And the other thing also that can be tricky is this road crosses the creek nine times. And so I know there are times in the spring, at least when the runoff is high, that the park closes the road because I guess these creeks can become impassable. So that's another thing to uh, be aware of as well. Yeah. But if you uh, know how to navigate that kind of terrain, then that would be a fun thing to do. Well, it would, because that's going to get you back into the park where some of these alpine, more alpine areas are. What about the tundra and wetlands? (laughs) Well, we haven't actually been back there, Matt, so I cannot say for sure about that. Okay. Karen, when's the best time to go? Well, because of the heat of summer, we're going to say spring and fall are better times to go. I think winter is um, a little chilly. Although, wouldn't it be cool to see snow on the dunes? I would love to see snow on the dunes. Yeah. I would do it in, in colder weather because the it's it's a workout climbing the sand. And I think mm-hmm. you, you would create a lot of body heat hiking up the sand. So it wouldn't bother me going there in the winter. And maybe then you could actually bring a snow sled or saucer. Um, and how much time to spend there? You know, really, you can see it in a half a day to one day. So if you're going to do, if Medino Creek is flowing and you're going to hang out there at the at the beach, then, you know, you probably want a full day. If you are just hiking a dune, really a half day, we're going to say, is probably, probably going to be enough. What about if you're going to sleep in the backcountry? Well, then, you know, you need... <laughs> Again, a half a day. You hike out there, <laughs> set up your tent, you, and then you run screaming back to the visitor's A mile set. and a half. <laughs> Leave your tent and sleeping bag where it is. As you're looking at the stars, though. Uh, right. It's going to be beautiful out there. All right. And, of course, where to stay if you're not camping at the Pinion Flats campground. The closest town is... Alamosa, and it's about 40 minutes away, uh, and there are plenty of chain hotels there. Right, and that's where we stayed. I believe we stayed in a Hampton. You know, another mistake we made, again, because we we didn't have this national park thing figured out yet, but when we went and checked into our hotel, you know, it was probably 5 o'clock, and then we went to a, a Mexican restaurant and drank margaritas, and what we should have done is gone back into the park for sunset because it would have been so much cooler. It would have been beautiful. There wouldn't have been as many people. Like, it would have been a completely different experience. So after those big margaritas, you, <laughs> no. This is how much we've learned in thirteen no, years. No, 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 no. You I'm... think it would be a good idea to go back into the park and hike up the dunes? No, I'm saying we should have skipped the margaritas. Oh, never thought of that. <laughs> you look shocked. You look shocked that yeah. I said that. <laughs> when when do we do that? <laughs> well, maybe we could start doing that someday. <laughs> okay, but not today, right? Not today. Okay. okay. All right. One other thing we should note is that dogs are allowed in some of the areas of the park, but they do need to be leashed at all times. We saw a lot of people with off-leash dogs, and that's a whole other topic that we won't get into now. But one thing we should say is that sand can be very hot, like we explained, and it's hot on their paws. And, you know, the dogs aren't good at telling you that their paws are burning. Exactly. And there's nowhere for them to go, particularly the the large dogs, if you realize this, you're halfway up a dune to 
pick up your 80-pound dog to keep their little paws from burning. So anyway, you just really have to be careful with, with your dogs on that hot sand. You really do. And the park has signs posted everywhere about this. And we still saw dogs out there, like you said, Matt, running without a leash and no protection for their paws. So think about your pets, think about other people. And those are the rules about dogs. Uh, One more thing I wanted to say before we leave Great Sandings National Park is that when you visit, if you're lucky, you might get to hear the sand sing. I I don't remember hearing it sing. I I think we were crying too loudly to hear anything. My own breath is all I heard. (laughs) So these singing or booming sands are caused by little avalanches that are moving down the face of the dunes. And so an audible vibration can develop when when sufficient amounts of sand compress the air within this moving sand. All right, take a listen to this. That's a vacuum cleaner is what that is. You just played a clip of a vacuum cleaner. Matt, <laughs> that we- little audio clip is on the Great Sand Dunes National Park service. And it's still playing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> turn, that, turn the vacuum cleaner off, please. There it goes again. All righty. So that is going to... Wrap up Great Sandings. Where should we head to next, Matt? <laughs> let's let's <laughs> head to another sand national park. How about White Sands National Park in New Mexico? Not really that far from Great Sand Dunes. Well, not really. If you're, I mean, if you're in that part of the country, yes. And you know, a completely different experience for us. We actually loved White Sands National Park. Yeah, because we didn't do all the stupid stuff that we did at. <laughs> Great sand dunes. Right. You know what's odd? One of the things that's odd about White Sands is that this national park sits on one of the largest military bases in the United States, which is the White Sands Missile Range. Yeah, and it's fun to hike in there because they there's signs up that say, if you find a missile, don't touch it. It literally <laughs> says that. <laughs> well, it doesn't even say missile. It says an unidentifiable object or something like that. Yeah, I think we I think we saw a missile. We saw fins sticking out of, of the sand one place. You and John were hoping <laughs> to find a missile. That was like your mission is to find I, something that could possibly blow up. I think up. we actually did. <laughs> Yeah, well, they sometimes they say that <laughs> because it's by the missile range, sometimes they miss enough that the missiles go into White Sands National Park. However, I think that's a very rare occurrence. I think it is, too. Let's yeah. hope. Now, one of the other unusual things about this particular park is that this sand is made up of gypsum crystals. It is. So the sand is white. As in the name of the park, mm-hmm. uh, it's it compacts better and it also does not get as hot because it's white and it's reflecting a lot more of the sun's radiation. So it's not picking up as much heat as like silica sand does that's, you know, tan. Right. right. And so even on hot days, 
it's going to be cooler. At least the sand is. The yes. outside temperature can be very warm. Yeah, so this is a lot easier to walk on because like you said, it compacts better. So the sand was not filling into our shoes at every step. I think when we were hiking, you started it in flip-flops, if I remember. I, right. I did. I did. I changed from flip-flops. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I could have done the whole hike in, in flip-flops, but um, I was I was a little concerned about blisters on my feet. Yes. So I, I switched to like water shoes. So this gypsum dunefield, get to use the word dunefield again, Matt, is the largest of its kind on earth. It has a depth of about 30 feet with dunes as tall as 60 feet. And this park has about, and I don't know how they know this, but 4.5 billion tons of gypsum sand. So the dunes aren't really high, but I think the sand sheet is pretty... (laughs) It's pretty widespread, Karen. Is that right? (laughs) I don't know, Matt. You're going beyond my knowledge base right there. All right. Well, I wish we had some (laughs) history about this park. Well, I tell you what, another interesting thing, so many interesting things, is that archaeological evidence that they have found shows that humans lived here more than 10,000 years ago. But you know what? If you fast forward about 10,000 years to the um, park history... White Sands National Park was originally designated White Sands National Monument in January of 1933 by President Herbert Hoover. That guy, again. I know, again. He was busy. He he liked the sand parks. He Mm -hmm. had a thing for sand, I guess. Then, after 1941, they built the military installations of White Sands Missile Range and Holloman Air Force Base. And it was redesignated a national park by Congress and signed into law on December 20th, 2019. So one of the newer parks. One of the newer parks, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, some of the things to do in the park, Karen, you can drive the scenic road. And there's just one road. It's eight miles long. We were there on a trip with John and Lolly, uh, one of our trips through New Mexico. And I thought it was an odd experience as we're driving. We actually were cautious and driving slow because it looked just like snow and ice. I thought we were going to slide all over the place. I know. It is a very strange optical illusion when you're driving on that eight-mile scenic drive that you are literally driving in snow. Now, in this park, you can bring your own saucer or you can buy one at the visitor center. So the visitor center does have those... And you can also buy wax there. Well, that's that's the key. That is the key. That's the secret right there. Because I believe these are regular plastic saucers like you would use on snow. But again, this this sand is a little bit different than the sand at Great Sand Dunes. So I believe it works better. But wax is your friend. And then if you are flying home and you don't want to try to take this saucer that you just bought home with you, you can drop it off at the visitor center. Wax is your friend. That's the next t shirt. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, There are some hiking trails in the park now. Trails, we're going to put little air quotes around that because you're basically walking in the sand. But there are a couple of short nature and boardwalk trails that you can do if you're not up for a longer hike. Right. But we did the longest hike in the park, which was Alkali Flat Trail. It's a 4.5-mile loop, 
And they say it's strenuous. You're going up and down, up and down, up and down many times, which is exactly what you do. Yes, that's exactly what you do. But what the park has done, and this is such a great idea to keep people from getting lost, they have put trail markers throughout the sand dunes and they're color coded depending on which trail you're on. And we could always see the trail marker from any one trail marker. We could always see the one from where we came and the one we're going to. So you could you could always see two or three trail markers. Now, they're pretty far in the distance. You can barely see them, but you, you always had at least a couple in sight. Right. And the park does say when you are out in the desert on these hikes, if you can't see your next trail marker, don't start Walking from the trail marker where you are, they suggest that you turn around so you don't get lost. Karen, can you sleep on the sand in this park? Well, you can, Matt. They do have backcountry camping here. Unfortunately, these backcountry camping sites are currently closed for rehabilitation. And the website says there is no reopening date to be announced. So currently, as right now, you can't. But once it reopens, you know, hopefully, hopefully soon. Yeah, but when they reopen, it gives you an opportunity to camp amongst the glistening gypsum sand dunes and under the star-studded night sky. Right. There you go. All right. Best time to go. Uh, Spring, fall, and winter are best. It does get very warm in the summertime. And another seasonal thing to mention is there is no alcohol allowed in the park during certain months. I think it's like March and April because there are a lot of colleges within a fair distance of this park. And this is a popular spring break destination for college kids. So after a few years of dealing with that, the park said, okay, no alcohols allowed during spring break months. And then that killed the party right there. <laughs> killed the party. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I don't think it's an issue anymore. Right. But you know, what is an issue is the summertime at White Sands. May through August, the daytime temperatures can be over 100 degrees. So they are very um, adamant at the park that you do not start a hike if the temperature is at or above 85 degrees. And unfortunately, there have been at least several deaths due to the heat at White Sands. That's right. And I think people um, kind of underestimate not only the heat, but how quickly you can get dehydrated. And when you get dehydrated and get heat exhaustion, you start to you start to lose your common sense and your ability to orient where you are. And so, yeah, that that's really tough when you're out there on the dunes. It is. And if you go in the summer, because, you know, that's when obviously kids have summer vacation, be sure to hike in the morning and take more water than you need. And every single person, every child needs to be carrying a lot of water on these hikes. That's right. So the amount of time to spend if you're going, I think a, a day was certainly enough for us. I mean, we hiked the, the longest trail and that was a lot of fun. We got to see uh, really the, the whole area of the park. Uh, so a day was enough for us. Yes, I think so too, because there aren't that many trails. It's easy. You know, the eight mile scenic drive is, is very quick. One thing to note, this is one of the few national parks that has an opening and a closing time. And there's a gate that shuts. You know, it changes by the season. Obviously, in the summer, the hours, the closing hours are extended. But when you're planning your visit, look at the park website to see what time they open and what time they close, because that's when you will be limited to. 
And it's a pretty convenient place to stay if you're not going to camp in the park. The town of Alamogordo is close by. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly how far, but it seemed like a 15 to 20 minute drive. I mean, it's like this park is almost like a suburb of Alamogordo. Right. White Sands is a great park to visit. And I think one thing that people are just struck by the beauty of these white sands. And then when, the day we were there, the sky was as blue as could be. And there are some mountains off in the distance. And so it really is one of those visually stunning parks. It's striking. It is striking. And probably unlike any place you'll ever see in your life. It's it's like no place we've ever seen before or since. Yeah, it's definitely going back in the bucket. We got to go back there. Absolutely. We'll go back to White Sands. All right. Let's go to our next sand dune park, which is Indiana Dunes National Park in Indiana. This is located along the southern shore of Lake Michigan. And this was a surprise to me, Matt, when I read this, that this is one of the most diverse national parks. Included in the park's 15,000 acres are not only sand dunes, but also oak savannas, swamps, bogs, marshes, prairies, rivers, and forests. But not tundra. Not tundra here, no. (laughs) Okay, but it does have 15 miles of Lake Michigan shoreline, which runs from Gary, Indiana, to Michigan City. That's right. In fact, this particular park, their beaches are their most significant recreational resource, which again is surprising because it's called Indiana Dunes. But apparently more people go for the beach than they do the dunes. Now, this is another national park that is open only certain hours during the day. 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. So this is also a park that you have to get out before they close the gate. All right, let's talk about the history of Indiana Dunes. So apparently this area had a lot of recreational development in the late 19th century. And as you can imagine, this was a place where people would come to swim in Lake Michigan and play on the dunes. You know, you have the big city of Chicago, which is an hour away. So right here where the park is, there were resorts and summer cottages and people would come in on ferry boat excursions and they would have boardwalk dances and and there were ice cream shops. (laughs) Sounds like a party. (laughs) It does sound like a party. It actually sounds really fun. However, at about the same time, the other thing that's happening here is that industrial sand mining was destroying huge areas of this dune land. So alarmed by this destruction and because steel companies were buying up the land in the area, a campaign was started to create Sand Dunes National Park. Yeah, to protect the sand sheet. The dune field, the sand sheet. The dune fields, the sand sheet, (laughs) and the duneland. Dune land. So in October of 1916, and this is only two months after the National Park Service was established. Remember, we talked about that in our last episode. Stephen Mather, who was the service's first director, he went to Chicago to um, have hearings and to gauge public sentiment about this new Sand Dunes National Park. And apparently 400 people showed up and 42 people spoke in favor of uh, making this a park. And there were no opponents. Yeah, so they're ready to make it a national park. 
But then what happened, Karen? Well, World War I happened. And unfortunately, this effort had to be put on hold uh, because priorities changed quickly from spending money on a national park to spending money on national defense. And I guess there was a popular slogan back then that was, save the dunes. And they changed it to, first save the country, then save the dunes. And, you know, after World War I, the nation then went into a depression and the hopes to save the dunes began to fade. Where was Herbert Hoover? You know, he was saving those other dunes. This one just got passed over? Uh, apparently so. He was busy um, in New Mexico. But fast forward to November of 1966, and this land became not Sand Dunes National Park, but Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore. So at the time, this legislation included only 8,300 acres of land and water, and some groups like the National Park Service and the Save the Dunes Council, they continued to lobby for additional surrounding land to be added to this National Park Service site. So as the years went on, um, four more expansion bills passed, and these bills increased the size of the park to now more than 15,000 acres. Still a small park when you think about it. But Karen, the story's not over yet. Well, no, the story's not over because in February of 2019, Congress authorized the name change from Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore to Indiana Dunes National Park, which was our country's 61st national park. There you go. What an interesting journey this area had from a resort to a national park. Now, we visited it back in 2013. Yeah, I, I had a job that required me to be in Chicago quite a bit. So we went down there and visited the dunes and hiked around. Yes, we did. And again, it was still the National Lake Shore at the time. It was not the National Park. But I don't think it has changed much since then. So let's talk about some of the things to do. There are 15 miles of sandy beach, and there's a wide variety of recreational activities. Now, West Beach is the most visited beach, and close by there is the Three Loop Trail. It's 3.4 miles total. It's about 223 feet of elevation gain. Yes, I wish we would have done this trail when we went. We didn't do this one, but it's cool. I've seen photos because the, so it's a three loop trail, as you said, Matt, but the loop one is the dune succession trail and you go up 270 stairs from the beach on a very cool looking wooden staircase. Now, to me, that's the way you want to climb a sand dune. Oh yeah. Stairs. If there's right. stairs available, we're taking stairs <laughs> right. or an escalator. Sign me up. Elevator would be fine also. <laughs> Right. And then there's the second loop is called the West Beach and the third loop is called Long Lake. But yeah, you could do all three for a 3.4 mile total hike. You're overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. So if you're just going to one spot to visit the park, maybe this West Beach area is where you want to be. But we didn't do that. We hiked up Mount Baldy. Yeah, Mount Baldy is one of the tallest lakefront dunes in the world. It rises 126 feet up from the beach. Yeah, and it was a memorable hike for a couple of reasons, mainly because of what happened after we were there. Yes, we were still in Chicago at the time, and on all the local news stations, there was a story about a six-year-old boy who was visiting the park with his family. They hiked up Mount Baldy, and this boy became trapped beneath 11 feet of sand when a sinkhole opened up on this dune. 
Yeah, and the boy fell into the sinkhole, and he was trapped for three hours. And rescue workers came. Uh, I guess he was able to survive because there was an air pocket down there in the sinkhole. Gave the rescue workers enough time to get him out. But most people buried in the sand suffocate within 10 minutes. But Nathan walked out of the hospital two weeks later. Local officials called it the miracle on Mount Baldy. And at the time, it was such a mystery as to how and why that could have happened. Why would there be a hole in the dune with air pockets? Mount Baldy has been around for a long time. It began to take shape 4,500 years ago when the water level in Lake Michigan dropped 20 feet, exposing fields of sand to the wind. By combining physical measurements with an analysis of aerial photographs, scientists already knew that between 1938 and 2007, the dune had rolled nearly 440 feet inland. It had buried trails, a staircase, and stands of black oak 60 to 80 feet tall that had long stood between Baldy's bottom edge and the parking lot. Right, and after this sinkhole incident, when they investigated what happened, they found more cavities hidden beneath the sand. And what they determined was these oak trees that had been buried under the sand over the years had rotted away and created holes that sand hadn't filled in. And these holes can exist undetected at the surface, covered by just a thin veneer of sand. And then, you know, these holes can open up. And particularly if it's a thin layer of sand and you're hiking over them, then yeah, that's not good. Now, because of this, ever since then, Mount Baldy, um, the hike up to the top of the dunes has been closed to individual hikers. They do have some ranger-led hikes that you can join if you want to do this summit trail, but you have to be with a ranger. You know, you'd want to look on the website to see what the schedule is. Apparently, then, these the rangers are aware of, you know, where the sinkholes yeah, are. where the thin veneers of, of sand are. Mm-hmm, uh-huh. Right. And and avoid those. But in the park, Karen, there are over 50 miles of trails that go through the shifting sand dunes, quiet woodlands, sunny prairies, and lush wetlands. Right. So if, if hiking on sand isn't your thing, there are other trails there, like you said, Matt, that go through woods and, and have more diversity than just the sand dunes. And this is a park that you could go really any time of the year. I mean, summertime is great for beaches and playing in the sand, but also in the winter, there's cross-country skiing, there's snowshoeing, and I would imagine spring and fall are great also. Yes, I think so too. I've seen some photos of this park in the snow, and it does look really magical. And as far as how much time to spend, you know, probably one day is enough to see this park unless, you know, you want a beach vacation and you and your family are going to go to the beach every day for multiple days and hang out. You'd want to plan accordingly. Yeah, unless you live in Gary, Indiana, and you go every day. So so long as you get out by 11 p.m. when they close the gate. That's right. And, you know, one thing about this park, the visitation numbers are really high. And I think that's exactly why, Matt. I think a lot of people who live in Indiana and in the Chicago area are are making good use of this park. I have to say, you know, our opinion as far as a national park 
one of the issues with this park is it's divided into three separate sections. And it also has Indiana Dunes State Park nestled in there as well. And unfortunately, before they could save this land, there were steel mills built and power plants. And so as you're driving through, you can see a lot of this industrial development. But we have heard that the adjacent state park is really a great park. Yes. In fact, some people have told us that the state park is actually better than the national park. Now, we didn't visit the state park, so we can't give our opinion about that. But, you know, if you're going, you might check out the state park. It's literally right there next to the national park. Yeah, it's always great when you're going to a national park and then have this adjacent public land. So, you know, bonus public lands if you go to Indiana Dunes National Park. That's right. And it is great that they have saved this land from further development and that it's this resource where millions of people can go to recreate. So if you're going to go, you can always stay in Chicago. Now that's about an hour drive away, depending on where in Chicago you're at. But the closest place would be Chesterton. Right. That's right there. And I think, you know, there are a few hotels there, you know, and and there are other little towns around. Obviously, this is a very um, populated area, Gary, Indiana. And I I don't know anything about Gary, Indiana, except for the song. (laughs) And we're not going to sing that, are we? No, we're not. All right. (laughs) No, we're not. So that wraps up Indiana Dunes National Park. But there are other sand dunes in parks that we've been to that I think we should mention also like honorable mention. Yes. And and you know, what's interesting is there is a park, this is not a national park, that we're going to just mention briefly, Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. And this is also on Lake Michigan. So this is on the what northeast side of the lake, about a half an hour west of Traverse City. Yeah, we've been there. It was pretty cool. We hiked up the dunes there also in the middle of the summer. So yeah, we're slow learners. But yeah, it's it's a very popular, it's a National Park Service site. It's a very popular site in central western Michigan. Yes, and this park is very beloved. You know, I have to say, after doing social media for... I don't know how long we've been doing social media. 100 years. (laughs) 10 years. Feels like 100. We get a sense of the places that people love. And I'm telling you, Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore is one of those places. We're just going to talk about it really briefly. It got its name because apparently there's a dune that looks like a sleeping bear. But I, I just don't remember seeing that. I think you have to look at it from a certain angle. It's it's perched along the edge of the large dune that towers over Lake Michigan. And, you know, with the blowing sand, I'm not quite sure it even looks like that anymore, but that's where it got its name. Yeah, but this park site has about 100 miles of designated trails, uh, so that's pretty cool. And most of them are maintained during the winter for cross-country skiing and snowshoeing. And also this park, which I didn't even realize, Matt, till I looked at the park map, there are like two islands in Lake Michigan that are part of the park. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that would be cool to visit also. So we just wanted to put this on people's radar. If you are in Michigan and you're over in that area, absolutely check out Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. All right. 
There are a few other sand dunes in the national parks we wanted to mention. Yes. One of our favorites, and we've talked about this before, is in Death Valley National Park in California, and this would be the Mesquite Flats sand dunes. Yeah, there are actually five sand dune locations in Death Valley National Park, but the Mesquite Flats, that's the best known and really the easiest uh, set of dunes to visit in the park. Yeah, it's right by uh, the Stovepipe Wells area, kind of in the center of the park. Um, so it's easy to get to, huge parking lot there, um, just easy access. Now, the highest dune only rises about 100 feet, but these dunes actually cover a wide, wide area. Yeah, the sand sheet is pretty expansive <laughs> there. Now, the best times to visit this sand dune um, would be during sunrise and sunset, but I guess we could say the same for all of the sand dune parks. And as far as seasonally, we always go in February, March, and April. We th- we think those are the best months. Yeah, and those those are fantastic. Of course, do not try this in the summertime, especially you know the the heat of the summer. Yeah, it can get dangerously hot on those dunes. What it's been a hundred and twenty, I think, for multiple days in Death Valley this summer. There are times in the summer when it's mild temperatures in the eighties, but that's very rare. And even even then, those dunes can get pretty pretty warm. Check out Mesquite Flats. Our favorite thing to do is to go at sunset. And, you know, when we're there in the uh, in February and March, the sun is setting very early before dinner. So we usually have finished a hike. We grab a beer. We walk up to the top dune and we lay down, take in the sunset and drink a beer. And it's pretty much perfect. That's right. Okay, so that's Death Valley. Uh, another park that, that a lot of people go to, and is if you're there, you can check out the sand dunes, is Kobuk Valley National Park in Alaska. <laughs> oh, a lot of people go there, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think 72 people went last year. Right, right. And the reason is because Kobuk Valley National Park is above the Arctic Circle. And not only is it remote, but there are no roads that go in or out of the park. So you have to be dropped off by um, either a float plane or a small plane with wheels. Yeah, some people actually go on tours where they float the Kobuk River. So they're going by the sand dunes when they get to that part of the park. And that would be cool to do. When we went, our pilot, we were in a float plane and our pilot landed on a very, very small lake right at the base of the Great Kobuk Sand Dunes, which is really a remarkable sight to see. I mean, you you don't expect to see sand dunes above the Arctic Circle, right? You expect to see ice and snow and polar bears. But yeah, it's uh, pretty spectacular in the summer months when you have this Sahara-like sand dunes in the Arctic. Right. And I was surprised to read, too, that even in the summer, it can, summer temperatures there can reach 100 degrees, which is hard to believe because usually the rest rest of Alaska, you know, the lower elevations are are pretty cool in the summer and you don't see that kind of heat usually. That's right. There's a lot of permafrost in Alaska. That's why it's so swampy because there's ice underneath the first uh, foot or so of soil, but not in the sand dune area. So anyway, you can also sleep on these sand dunes if you want to. I don't even think you need a reservation or You just need a big gun for all the (laughs) grizzly bears that will come sniff sniff you out. There are wolves up there too. And I I think what would be cool is the uh, to see the caribou migration, which I believe is 
uh, September-ish, maybe end of August. Right. I guess that's a thing to do because it's pretty spectacular. They migrate across the river. It's hundreds of thousands of caribou. Yeah, so that would be a sight to see. So anyway, if you are visiting Kobuk Valley National Park in Alaska, most likely whoever you are booking your uh, trip with, usually I think they do take people to the um, to the sand dunes there. But if that interests you, you might check with them and see. And again, if you're in a small plane, they can land right on the dunes or nearby in the river or on a small lake. Right. If you're in a plane with uh, wheels, they, they can land in the sand. Right. All right. One more, Karen. Last one, last honorable mention would be one of our favorite places to visit. This is not a national park, but it's Mojave National Preserve. This is in California. It's not far from Vegas. We always drive over there when we're visiting Vegas because it's such a unique landscape. And in addition to the sand dunes that they have there, they have the, I think, the world's largest Joshua tree forest. Yeah, it's a spectacular preserve. And now with uh, some recent designations in the surrounding areas, there's a lot of adjacent public land. So this is a great area to explore. Uh, And one of the places in the preserve that we go to is Kelso Sand Dunes. This is a pretty big dune field, Karen. Yes, and when you're driving through the preserve, you can see these dunes from a long ways away. Yeah, it covers 45 square miles, and these dunes can go up to 650 feet high, from the at least from the desert floor. That's almost as high as the Great Sand Dunes National Park sand dunes. Right. Now, if you want to hike up there to the top of the dunes to see the view from the other side, um, it's about a three-mile round-trip hike. Again, we we struggled on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Slow learners. I think that's I think that's the title of this episode. Yes, slow learners. That's our new podcast (laughs) name right there. (laughs) I thought it was simple folk. <laughs> so I like them both. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. This one, I don't know. I think we, it was late afternoon. It was hot. We were sweating. We were out of breath. But uh, it was still beautiful once we got up there. Yeah, it, it was. We didn't get all the way to the top. We kind of stopped. I don't know. Maybe. No, we were at the top. Were we? Yeah. For like two seconds because it was windy. That's the thing you got to watch out for is the, the wind. The wind will get you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And the 650 feet of elevation gain. <laughs> And the sand that you keep slipping backwards. Yeah, that'll get you. I thought we were going to have a romantic moment watching the sunset from up there. And we were only there for a moment, but it was not romantic no, at all. No, it wasn't romantic at we all. Were, we were mad no. at each other because for some reason, I don't know, because we got suckered into I, another sand hike. I wasn't enjoying it as much as you wanted me to. Maybe that was it. All right. If you're looking for the Kelso sand dunes, again, you'll probably see them a long before you get there. But they're close to the Kelso Depot area. Um, You turn off the main road. You do have to drive for three miles down a dirt road. But I didn't think that was too too rough. Did you, Matt? No, I thought the road was uh, in pretty good shape. We've driven to those dunes a few times. There is an official trailhead with some bathrooms, and yeah, it does start actually does start out on a trail, which is unlike some of the other sand dunes. But then shortly, the trail disappears, and you are just hiking on sand. Yeah, you can go wherever you want. Right, right. All right. So, uh, is that enough sand for you, Karen? I think I think our shoes are full of sand now, Matt. <laughs> Get it? That is sand so in our shoes. So clever I of know, you. I know. Yeah. I was trying to work in 
pull your head out of the sand. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I would have said that to you, that would have been rude. So. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, there are a lot of amazing sand dune places. There are a lot of state parks that we simply don't have time to go into. But I know that people all across the country are enjoying their sand dune parks. That's right. We're currently working on some exciting new episodes. One is about Wrangell St. Elias in Alaska, and another is about Great Basin National Park in Nevada. And for all of you who support us on our Patreon account, if all goes according to plan, we'll be putting together an episode next week while we're on the road about some new public lands we just visited. And we hope to see a lot of fourth graders and their families out in the parks and a lot of new junior rangers. Yeah, be sure to wear your badge.